Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming and for um, showing up to help tenants in their housing cases at this very, very important juncture. I'm here with, uh, with my colleague, Jade Brown, who's a clinical instructor at BU, and I work at Greater Boston Legal Services in the housing unit. Um, so we're gonna go ahead and uh, walk you through um, some basics around answer, discovery, and requesting a jury trial. And then we're gonna um, spend some time showing you the online tool MADE um, and some, some, some features there that, um, that might be new to folks to help them um, help tenants uh, file these important documents in their cases. Um, so yeah, this is our presentation. We're hopefully uh, giving people a fighting chance in their eviction cases uh, with, um, with helping them file answer and discovery. Um, so uh, after an eviction case is filed, this is the most important thing a tenant can do to protect themselves is to file answer and discovery um, and uh, potentially a jury uh, demand request. So as everyone knows, thousands of tenants are gonna need to fill out and submit this documentation to have a fighting chance in their case. And there's a link to the MAID program, which is this online tool that we'll walk you guys through later on in the presentation. So just in terms of the rules that govern eviction cases in Massachusetts, there are summary process rules, um, which you can look at if you're, if you're having any questions. Um, and then there's also the Massachusetts Rules of Civil Procedure, which will apply um, if the summary process rules don't address the specific issue. So things are rapidly changing. Um, there was an as many of you I'm sure know, there was an eviction moratorium that was in place uh, for many months that just recently expired. Uh, and now the housing court is, um, is open and is processing cases that were pending prior to the moratorium and also will begin processing new cases. Um, so there's a new housing court standing order 6-20, which uh, it might make sense to take some time and, and read through it. Um, it's a pretty quick read, but it outlines uh, sort of generally how things are gonna go um, in housing court these days. So the answer and discovery uh, pursuant to this new housing court standing order is due three days before the first tier event. And so the first tier event is um, gonna be the first event, uh, first court date in any new case um, that's that's gonna be filed. And it's, it's a mediation, it's a chance for the parties to hopefully come to some sort of resolution. So the, house, the answer and discovery is due three days before that date, technically. However, we strongly, strongly encourage people to file these documents immediately after receiving the summons and complaint to avoid missing deadlines. Um, a lot can go wrong with technology, with the MAID system, or with people not getting, particularly not getting the notices um, with ample time to be able to complete um, and file and serve these documents. Um, and you can always go to masscourts.org and you can log in if you have a BBO number um, to get links to documents, PDF links to documents. But even if you don't have a BBO number, for some reason, you can go to masscourts.org and, and look up your case. So tenants can also do that too and see um, Zoom login info or, or sort of what's going on in the case, what's been docketed. Um, just briefly, cases can be filed in district court or housing court. Um, so there is a uh, you can you can automatically you can transfer to housing court um, as of right if you if you file the transfer form which may easily helps you create um, if you file the transfer form both in district court and in housing court uh, no later than the day before the commencement of trial uh, if 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 um, 
if tenants opt to do that, um, then we just suggest that you use made to go ahead and do that um, those trans that transfer paperwork at the same time that um, that you're filing the answer in discovery. So this is what the summons and complaint looks like. Um, so when you go through made with someone or you're helping them with answer and discovery, uh, you're going to want to have this document in front of in with the tenant, um, as well as the notice to quit if they received one, which they, they should have. Um, this is what the summons and complaint look like before. Um, and it looks similar to, to this. Um, and it has Im important information, including um, on the left-hand corner, the court in which the case was filed, um, the, the, um, the name of the landlord, if there's an attorney, the contact information, what's the claim what's the case based on, what's the allegations, um, and if there's any rent owed. So the answer generally is comprised of defenses and counterclaims. And um, in summary process cases in Massachusetts, counterclaims are not compulsory, meaning that they can be brought in another case if they're not brought uh, in this case, uh, just, so you, just so folks are aware. So in general, I'd like to think about, now I'm gonna go through um, some very basics about what your defenses and counterclaims might be in a summary process case, but keep in mind that MAID walks, it's, it's really for, for designed for tenants to be able to use on their own. So if you're using MAID, it's gonna walk you through a series of questions um, and then it, it formulates the, the questions to follow based on the, the questions that you answer. So this is, I think, important though, to, to know some of the background information and have a bigger picture about the law. Um, but all these, all these claims obviously may not apply in every case. And um, you by no means you know, need to be an expert on each of these things to be able to help someone um, file these documents. But see, these are some of the, um, the, the, the sort of like, way as I think about it is that there's the tenancy wasn't properly terminated or the case was not properly brought. And those are the kind of claims that would apply in whatever kind of eviction case it is, whether it's a no fault case, a non-payment case, or a case involving some claim based on fault of the tenant. And then there's defenses and counterclaims, um, including retaliation, discrimination, uh, bad conditions in the unit, invading a tenant's privacy um, and security deposit and last month rent violations amongst others. And there's, when these, when claims are brought as counterclaims in the case, they can make the landlord liable to the tenant for money damages. And in a no fault or a non-payment case, if the landlord uh, owes the tenant more because of their counterclaims than the tenant owes the landlord, um, they can win possession uh, of the apartment. Uh, in a no fault case, however, um, the same, same principle doesn't apply. That, that would be more about um, you know, uh, the, the actual allegations or um, something about the case uh, procedurally or technically um, being wrong. Um, so here are some, some of the tendency, the sort of more procedural, uh, for better, lack of a better word, defenses. Um, so the tenant never received a notice to quit. That's the letter terminating their tenancy um, that, that, uh, that they should receive prior to the summons and complaint. Um, maybe the notice to quit was defective because um, it didn't include all of the occupants or it didn't um, properly terminate the tenancy because it wasn't specific or it wasn't in compliance with the rules or the lease 
um, or the law. If the landlord started the case, they filed the summons and complaint before the notice to quit expired. So notice to quits will generally be seven days. Like they'll say your tenancy is terminated in seven days, 14 days, 30 days, uh, the end of the next rental period. Um, if the landlord starts a case before the notice to quit expires, um, that, that also can be, to be, a, can be a defense. Um, if the landlord's a corporation or other business entity, the case ought to be brought by an attorney. Next. Um, so if the summons and complaint is defective or it wasn't properly served or filed, um, that can be a problem. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's strict rules around um, service of the summons and complaint um, has to be done by a constable or sheriff. Um, it needs to be, um, can either be done by hand or by leaving it at the apartment. But if it's left, it also has to be mailed. And, and sometimes that doesn't happen. Um, the tenant has a lot of the cases we're going to be seeing, um, we anticipate are going to be non-payment cases. So under the law, the tenant actually has the opportunity to cure the non-payment in certain situations. Um, the, the timelines are different based upon whether there's a lease or whether it's just an oral tenancy. Um, but that's important uh, to, to know that, um, that there are certain cure rights uh, in certain situations. Um, Sometimes in situations the tenancy was terminated, but the landlord um, accepts, for example, accepts money and doesn't preserve their rights to, um, to accept the, ten the, the money and not create a new tenancy. Um, and that can be uh, a reason that the case um, can't move forward. Um, if the notice to quit and the complaint state inconsistent reasons, one states non-payment, one states a cause, um, that can be grounds um, for defense. And um, if the landlord doesn't have standing, for example, they're not, um, the owner or lessor, and you can look up um, some of the ownership information easily in the, um, the Registry of Deeds. And there's some new defenses um, that came into play because of the pandemic. Um, one is uh, the CARES Act requires 30-day um, notice to quit um, in certain cases where, um, in certain non-payment cases that are covered by the CARES Act, like federally, um, federally in certain federally subsidized properties. Um, if you sent this landlord the CDC declaration, um, which our colleagues from VLP will go into more detail about, uh, that could be a grounds to have the case potentially dismissed or at least stayed um, through the end of the year. Uh, if the notice to quit um, was sent during the eviction moratorium, but it wasn't for what was an essential case under the moratorium, you might be able to argue that the case itself um, can't go forward uh, based on those grounds. And these are some, some common defenses and, and also some of them are counterclaims too. Um, so retaliation, um, if there's discrimination, if the, the case was brought because of someone's, you know, there's a, a list of protected classes um, that can also be, uh, you know, something to bring up in the case. Um, another thing we see often in, in, as a defense in fault cases is reasonable accommodation based on a disability and, um, there's the leading case on it. So if, if a tenant has a physical or mental disability and there's a nexus between that disability and the alleged violation, um, and there can be a reasonable accommodation um, that the landlord can make uh, to be able to, to, to make it so that the tenancy can be preserved, um, that can be a defense in the case. Um, of course, in a fault case, if the claims are false or um, the claims just weren't sufficient enough to be a violation of the lease, especially in um, 
in, in Section 8 um, tenancies, there's certain um, grounds around uh, whether, you know, whether even if there is something that was, you know, not ideal, whether it arises to the level of a violation of the lease. So that's important to note too. Um, a couple more are, let's see, next slide. Yeah, so a big one we see, especially in non-payment and no-fault cases are bad conditions in the home. And that can come under the warranty, the implied warranty of habitability, um, the, the breach of quiet enjoyment um, or chapter 93A, the consumer protection law. And sort of generally, um, the, the, the general idea is that there were bad conditions in the home that the landlord either Sorry, I have some, have some background noise. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, and and um, so the landlord knew um, either, or they should have known under the law about uh, some, some bad conditions in the home um, that can um, actually make the landlord liable to the tenant for damages, um, which can help, like I said previously, help to um, help them win possession in certain instances. Um, the security deposit and last month rent laws in Massachusetts are, are fairly complicated and sometimes the landlord violates those as well. Um, and then finally, just to, to note that um, there's also something that MAID will allow you to, to put forward, which is that the tenant should not lose their apartment um, based on an avoidance of forfeiture, basically on the principles of equity, um, that it would be unfair to evict the tenant. Um, Um, and so one other thing that that is included in the in the answer that made helps you prepare is a request for a jury trial. Um, so the jury demand must be filed by the date that the answer is due. Um, and it's not like an extra it's not um, a hard thing to do. You just you know click something in made or um, that says you know you want to request a jury trial. If tenants don't do so by the date that their answer is due they um, they lose the right to do that um, and their default is a bench trial. Uh, however, if they, you know, if they choose to in the future, they, they are most likely able to, um, to go to a bench trial if, if that's something that they, they choose to do. Um, and we encourage tenants to strongly consider um, their right to a jury trial uh, and a right to have a trial in front of you know, other tenants potentially or, or other community members. And, um, and so, yeah, that's something to definitely discuss with tenants. Thank you, Maggie. And so now I will go through discovery. Um, so discovery is basically the process by which the tenant can find out information about um, the claims that the landlord has raised, um, the sort of evidence that the landlord plans to enter at trial. And so it's a really important step um, in terms of gathering uh, information for the case. Um, and there are different types of discovery. I'm just going to go through um, a couple um, of the common ones that we use and that we assist um, pro se tenants um, with using. Um, and generally rule seven of the uniform summary process rule um, covers discovery. Um, as Maggie mentioned, there's now standing order 620, which also provides um, some additional guidance on summary process cases. Uh, but it seems that for the most part, um, discovery largely remains the same in terms of the deadlines that the uh, landlord has for responding. 
Um, so I'll get into that a little bit more later on. But basically, the three types of discovery that we use most often um, in these cases are interrogatories, admissions, and document requests. Um, and these are ordinarily filed at the same time as the tenant's answer. And so um, by using MADE, you would be generating both an answer and um, these discovery requests. Um, ordinarily, um, in a summary process case, by filing uh, a request for, for discovery, um, the tenant would get an automatic continuance of the case for two weeks. Um, that process is a little bit unclear right now with the uh, current standing order. Um, I believe what's, what's happening is that at the first year event, which is the first um, court event, um, if the parties do not reach a settlement and the case is in fact proceeding to trial, um, then the court would set those further um, dates in the, in the trial or in the court case. Um, but generally, uh, it would be a two week continuance just by filing a request for discovery. So that's often one of the benefits um, in addition to getting information about the case is getting more time to prepare for the case. Um, and as I mentioned before, under, uni on, under the uniform summary process rules, um, the plaintiff would normally have 10 days after receipt of discovery to respond. Um, a tenant who misses um, the opportunity to request discovery um, can move for late discovery upon motion. Um, and so they would have to give some reason why maybe they did not um, request discovery initially. Um, and generally that request can be granted if it's deemed um, that there was good cause for them to uh, have missed the deadline. Um, and usually the plaintiff will request discovery after getting the tenant's answer. Um, and it's generally deemed good cause because they may have gotten information in the answer that they didn't previously know. Um, the court generally finds that that is enough to allow them to file a late request for discovery. So, um, and as I mentioned before, uh, the discovery uh, standing order 620 does, um, it doesn't specifically mention discovery except to say that um, the court may establish discovery and other necessary deadlines um, after that first year event. Um, however, uh, based on feedback from the court, it seems that the answer and the discovery are both due three days before that first year event that the court is gonna be scheduling. Um, and so in terms of the types of discovery, um, interrogatories are written questions that um, the tenant can ask of the landlord. Um, the, the key thing about interrogatories is that it's only for a party in the case. So um, the only person that you can really proffer interrogatories um, to is, is someone who's involved in the case like the landlord um, or a management company. Um, you're limited to 30 questions um, and subsets may count. So like if you have um, question 21A, B, C, um, the, the subsets may be objected to. Um, if the you know, landlord or the other side is saying that maybe those subsets are actually additional questions. Um, and the goal of the interrogatories is really to obtain um, key information for the case. You might find out things like um, any witnesses that the other side plans to call um, and just what their recollections are about any um, incidents or events um, that the claims are based upon. Um, the other thing that an interrogatory request normally includes is instructions and rules for responses. Um, and I'll show you a little bit 
um, later on of what that looks like. Uh, and generally the interrogatories are covered by um, the Mass Rules of Civil Procedure Rule 33. So as Maggie mentioned earlier, anything that's not covered by the Uniform Summary Process Rules, um, you default to the Rules of Civil Procedure. Um, and this is that discovery form. Um, so this is the typical pro se um, discovery form that we use. Um, and this is similar to what MADE will generate once you go through um, the portal. So it tells you that this is the defendant's request for discovery. Um, and these are instructions for the plaintiff um, to follow in responding to the discovery. So as you can see at C, it tells um, the plaintiff that they have um, no later than 10 days after receipt um, of this request to respond. Uh, request for documents is another helpful tool, um, and that's under MRCP 34. Um, and once again, it's a written request from one party to another. Um, unlike the interrogatories, the document requests can be unlimited, so you can have more than 30 of them. Um, the caveat to that being that they can't be unduly burdensome. <laughs> so if you have, you know, 100 document requests, um, you might reconsider as to, you know, whether you actually need all of those documents. Um, and also the critical um, thing to remember is the documents you're, requested, you're requesting must be in the possession or control of the other party. Um, so for example, if you're requesting bank records, um, there might be an argument from the other side that those records are you know, in the control of, of the bank and you should go to them for the records, for example. Um, and for document requests, the other side can provide you with the documents or they can allow you to inspect, view, and copy. So sometimes when to, uh, we submit a document request for a tenant, the landlord may offer an opportunity for the tenant to come in um, to the management office and actually view um, those documents in their tenant file and copy the documents. Um, it's also helpful to be specific with document requests. So for example, um, you might specify the time frame that you're looking for documents from or if you know the names of the documents that you need, um, you might specify that as well. Um, admissions are not usually included in the pro se packets that uh, are generated through MADE or um, that are available to tenants, but they can be helpful um, in some instances. And so um, it may be that you um, think it would be helpful in a case and uh, potentially want to draft a request for admissions. Um, unlike um, interrogatories, the answers to the admissions are limited. So um, the other side does not have an opportunity to explain in great detail. Um, they really have to either respond, admit, or deny. Um, they can also say that they don't have sufficient information to admit or deny the question. Um, and the good thing about admissions is that um, if the other party does not respond um, by the discovery deadline, then those questions are deemed admitted. So if you ask, you know, did the tenant pay rent or did you agree to waive the rent that's owed to the tenant um, and then the landlord fails to respond to admissions, um, the presumption is that they've admitted the truth of that statement. Um, so what can you do um, if the landlord or the other side has not responded to your discovery? Um, while this is uh, cute sort of gif. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think this will help. I can tell you what would help, um, which is a motion to compel discovery. 
Um, so that is a pro se motion that's typically included um, in the made um, answer packet, answer and discovery packet that uh, you'll get when you complete the um, process there. Uh, but basically it allows the other, it allows the tenant or the party who's requested discovery um, to notify the court that the other side has not responded to that request or has provided responses that are incomplete. Um, the key thing to remember about a motion to compel discovery is that you must file it within five days after the date that the discovery responses were due. Um, if you file it later than that, you're really sort of at the mercy of the court um, and asking um, to file a late motion to compel discovery. And so we generally encourage folks to try to get that request in as soon as possible after um, that 10 day deadline has passed. Um, in regards to filing and service, um, I'll actually come back to this slide after going through um, the made uh, slide. So I'm gonna switch over now to showing you a little bit of the made eviction defense system and how it works. I might have to stop this share um, in order to reshare the website with you. Okay, so we're on the GBLS website um, and that is the easiest way to access MADE is to go to gbls.org slash M-A-D-E. Um, what is MADE? It's the Massachusetts Def Defense for Eviction. Um, it's a self-guided eviction um, help tool for tenants. Um, and so once you get to the website, you're gonna click on start an online form. Um, and now you're officially on or at the start um, of the MADE um, portal. And so it gives you some general instructions about um, what this process will entail. Um, one of the key things to remember is that uh, you do need a copy of the summons and complaint and the notice to quit um, that the tenant received from the landlord to start this process. Um, it's extremely important to have both of those documents because they're going to really provide you with information like the court date, um, uh, the reason for the eviction, um, and other critical information that you will need to answer the questions through MAID. Um, one of the cool features with MAID is that you now have the ability to choose another language. Um, and so there's several languages available, but uh, for example, if I were to choose Spanish, it would automatically change um, all the instructions to Spanish. Because we're short, somewhat short on time today, um, I'm just gonna do a really quick run through of the system and cover some of the key features. So um, let's say we were starting um, to assist a tenant. One of the key things that you can do is actually to create an account. Um, so I'm already signed in here at the top, but if you were completely new to using this website, I would recommend that you actually, uh, it would give you an option to sign up and register. I would recommend that you register so that you can save a copy of the made um, answer and discovery that you've completed. Um, it's helpful to save a copy for a variety of reasons. Um, sometimes there might be a situation where you send it to the tenant for signing and maybe they don't receive it or they don't sign it. 
um, and you need to retrieve back a copy of the application, um, it's really easy if you already have an account to come back in, retrieve it and resend it. Okay, so um, let's create, let's actually go through the process if we were helping someone do an answer um, and discovery request. So it asks initially who's completing the request. Um, you can select attorney, tenant or helper. Um, for this one, we're just gonna say attorney. Um, and then it asks about the upcoming court dates. So um, once again, that's something that you would find on the summons and complaint. Um, so it's really critical to have that document before you get started. If the tenant doesn't have an upcoming court date, then maybe um, we'll not let them generate an answer in discovery form. Uh, da -da -da. So let's say we're at Main Street. So this is asking for um, the tenant's address. Um, it also asks if this is the same address where the tenant is being evicted from. So now we're gonna fill in the tenant's information. So hmm, let's say tenant is Jay Doe. Um, and it asks if there are additional tenants that are being evicted from the address, we're gonna say no. Um, so this is where it becomes helpful to have the summons and complaint once again, because it's gonna ask you to look at that document um, and to see if all the tenants are listed um, in the column that says tenants uh, slash occupants. So if, for example, there were tenants who were not listed, then MAID would automatically um, ask you questions so that it could generate um, defenses based on that um, defect in the summons and complaint. Um, one of the other cool features about MAID is our court date reminders. So if we provide the tenant's phone number and email address at the start um, of this application, it will actually send um, reminders to the tenant when those court dates are coming up. Um, so it's asking for the landlord's name. No, no offense to, to landlords, but... Um, uh, so it's also asking if the landlord is a company. Um, for this scenario, we're just gonna say yes. Um, and we don't know at this stage, if you have the summons and complaint, you could actually look to see if the landlord has an attorney because the attorney would have signed it at the bottom. Um, in this case, we're gonna say no, the landlord doesn't have an attorney. It also asks which court the case is being heard in and that's found on the top left-hand corner of the summons and complaint. And oh, another critical feature that I, so it will actually populate which court it thinks this case could possibly be heard in based on the address that we gave for the tenant. So it automatically will populate a court. So because I said the tenant was residing in Salem, Massachusetts, it's populated um, the Northeast Housing Court Salem session. Um, if that is not correct, you can always go in and change the court. And next is asking you for the tenant's court date. Um, and that 
usually would be found at the bottom of the summons and complaint form. Um, in the current context, I believe that form has been changed slightly, but uh, somewhere on the form, it will tell you the court date. Um, and then it would also ask, what is the date that it says the answer must be filed? Um, and usually it would tell you here as well, the answer must be received by the court clerk, you know, no later than this date. Um, as Maggie mentioned earlier, for now, the answer has to be received three days before that very first uh, court event. Um, and it would tell you what that date is on the notice that the tenant receives. And I just, and I just wanna add one, one thing is um, we're, you know, we're constantly um, giving updates to the creator of, of MADE to, to try to meet the changing reality. So some of the stuff um, might, be, might, might be changed to, to like exactly match what's going on with the court. Um, hopefully soon. But in terms of like not knowing, not having a court date set, um, because people will, because we're encouraging people to say, complete this paperwork um, when, as soon as they get their summons and complaint um, and not wait until they get the notice of a first tier event, um, you can actually put in some date in the future um, in the date for the first court event and, and then actually um, download it at the end into Word and just delete that date and put TBD. And that way you can help people, people do this immediately and they don't have to wait for the first tier events. I just wanted to make sure people knew that. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. Thank you, Maggie. Um, and so after you've filled in those um, dates, it's gonna ask you for some of the reasons for eviction, um, which Maggie went through earlier. So for this particular case, let's say it's a rent payment case. We're gonna select my landlord says I owe rent. Um, and then it's gonna ask some information about the tenancy. So it's asking um, whether the tenant lives in public housing. Um, we can say yes. Um, it also asks if English is my first, is not my first language. Um, this is a critical one because if you select um, that English is not your first language, it actually prompts you um, about whether you need an interpreter. Um, and it then asks you for the language and what this will do is generate a request along with your answer and discovery forms. Um, it will generate a request for an interpreter so that you can file that all together and the court can be aware that this tenant requires an interpreter. So it really um, generates all the documents you need um, in this process. It also asks things like whether the tenant has a disability um, or whether there's a minor or a senior um, or a victim of domestic violence. So because we said this was a rent payment case, it's going to ask um, about the amount of the rent and when the tenant first moved in. So we're just going to see if we can quickly Um, so it's going to ask you about that other document that I mentioned at the start, which is the notice to quit. So that is a notice that the landlord would have given to the tenant explaining um, why they're being evicted and notifying them that the landlord intends to pursue legal action if they don't leave the property within a certain time. Um, so usually for non-payment of rent, 
Um, the notice to quit is a 14-day notice, so it essentially gives the tenant 14 days um, to either pay up the rent or to vacate the apartment. Um, and so the critical thing to remember is tenants don't actually have to leave when they get a notice to quit. They can stay in the apartment and decide to wait for the landlord to file a court case to, and then assert any defenses that they have during the court case. Um, so this is asking you some information about the notice to quit. Um, does the notice have the tenant's name on it? Um, does it include the name of everyone on the lease? Is the address correct? Um, and these are all potential defects with the notice to quit. Um, so if any of these things were incorrect, um, MAID would flag it and actually help the tenant to generate a defense based on one of these um, defects. And then it also asks you for additional defenses that you may have. So, you know, regarding the contention that the tenant owes rent, um, you know, it asks whether the tenant was actually behind on rent. Um, and if so, whether any of these other um, potential defenses apply. So maybe the tenant never agreed to pay the amount of rent that the landlord is seeking. Um, maybe the tenant did owe rent at some point, but it has actually paid. Um, so I think for now we, we can select that to move forward. Um, type of lease, let's just say the lease has ended. Uh, and let's say the lease ended in January. So now it asks about some of the conditions, um, the potential bad, potential bad conditions that may exist in the tenant's apartment. So these are some of the um, potential counterclaims um, that Maggie mentioned earlier. So if the tenant has any of these conditions in the apartment, um, they could select it here and maybe would actually um, add it to the answer form as a potential counterclaim. And the next thing it asks is, is whether the tenant actually told the landlord about these conditions. So we're gonna say yes, that the tenant told the landlord in person or by phone. Um, so it asks a series of questions about potential, other potential defenses. Um, So I've gone through most of the, um, the actual answer form. We may not actually have time to get to the discovery, but um, the discovery responses are generally um, made automatically generate some of the discovery requests based on the answers that you've put in for the answer. So it's actually a pretty easy process once you've completed um, the answer. Uh, in terms of the key features it made, one of the, um, really cool features is the ability to watch videos to learn a little bit more about the law. So that's something that's really helpful for tenants, especially. 
to be able to see those little animated videos um, that provide more information. Um, I mentioned earlier that you can, uh, you can create an account. Um, in addition to letting you uh, be able to uh, share the completed answer and discovery form later on, it also allows you to save an interview and be able to come back to it. So for example, um, because I'm signed in, if I left this interview, um, I would be able to come back and actually uh, uh, finish off where I left off on the interview. Um, and one of the, like, one of the really cool features uh, for MADE is that actually at the end of this process, um, it will allow you to send the answer and discovery form to the tenant to sign um, electronically either on their phone or by email. Um, using their, their computer. So um, that's one of the critical features as well is the ability to electronically send this off for the tenant to sign. Um, and with that, I'm gonna go back to um, the main PowerPoint. And so we can just look at uh, the filing options that I mentioned earlier. So uh, after completing the, uh, the made answer and discovery forms, the tenant has several options um, for filing and serving. Um, and Maggie, I don't know if you wanted to sort of jump in here and... Sure, yeah. Um, I will, yeah, I'm gonna go through the filing serving, but one more tip I would just say that I've, I've learned in the COVID um, error around using made is the one the one thing I mentioned before on the, the court date and you're able to download it in word once you download it in word though it's um, it's hard to share electronically with a tenant to have them sign but there is actually um, and I apologize for not having it but I can maybe look it up and put it in the chat there is there is an SJC rule um, that basically says that you can you can if you review you know the if you review and get authorization um, you can actually, um, e-sign for someone as long as you 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 sign yourself and you say with approval with LFD approval and you can make sure that and you put your BBO number and in, in, in your you know your info and make sure that the court you know understands that you may not be you know entering them appearance in this case but that you've assisted um, and that sort of can help with some of the technical aspects of, of getting this stuff done. In terms of filing and, and serving, there's there's no way to file currently file directly from made into the court. Um, pro se litigants are in, encouraged to e-file. And um, there's a video here that walks, walks people through it. Um, it's easy to set up an account and, and it's pretty easy to e-file. But they can also be um, filed via email um, at that email right there. Um, and also if their, their current rules that were um, put into place during the pandemic states that if a landlord has an attorney, the, um, the pleadings can be served on the attorney via email. Um, and um, they, it's, it's also can always be filed and served by mail or in person. Um, however, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's complete upon receipt. So you have to be really careful in terms of the mail. Um, Thank you. Thank you, Maggie. Um, so I think now we're gonna hand it over to um, uh, some of the great folks at the Volunteer Lawyers Project to tell you a little bit more about volunteering Thanks so much, Maggie and Jade. Um, you guys actually have a couple questions in the q and I I don't know if you want, guys want to answer those before you head out. Sure. Um, I, can, I can read them out and then we can figure out 
um, how to respond to them. So the first one is from Joanna um, and says, do we anticipate any defenses around high risk for COVID or actually suffering from COVID or COVID caused lasting conditions? So I think that, I believe that might overlap a little bit with some of the things that VOP is gonna cover. Am I right about that, Amy? Um, uh, just, just a little bit. Um, yeah, I, we mostly just go over like CDC moratorium and stuff. So feel free to answer. Sure, I mean, you know, I, I think that there's so, um, there's no specific defense under the law that was created for COVID related um, conditions or, you know, the specific things that you mentioned, there's not a defense like um, per se. However, um, there is uh, a statutory right under in, um, in certain cases to request uh, six months or up to a year if there's an elderly or disabled person in the household, um, it's called a stay of execution. So this may come in, these, these issues certainly may come into play at that point. Um, these issues certainly may come into play um, in terms of like reasonable accommodation requests at various levels. Um, I don't, but there's not a specific defense um, that was created uh, by any new law during this pandemic that I'm aware of. Um, so Jeffrey's question is, may the tenant withhold payment if the property is uninhabitable un un or has substantial hazardous conditions? Yes, there is, um, yes, the tenant has a, a, a right to withhold rent under the law. Um, there are specific things that they have to do to, to be able to um, to do that, you know, legally within their right. I don't know if you have additions, Jade. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, we generally advise tenants not to withhold rent um, unless they've spoken to an attorney or have um, gotten guidance. Um, MassLegalHelp.org actually has a lot of information about how to properly withhold rent, including, you know, the type of notice to send to your landlord. Um, one of the critical mistakes that I think tenants make is withholding rent, but not showing that it's being kept in a separate account. Um, and so I think that's one of the issues that often come up in, in rent withholding cases um, is the tenant should really show that they're um, consciously not paying the rent to the landlord because there are these hazardous um, conditions. And part of that showing is showing that you have the rent money, but we're keeping it in a separate account. Um, so, yeah. And I can, we can add the link um, for Mass Legal Help uh, with that information. Yeah, thank you, Jade, that's great. Um, so Joanna has a question, another question. Is there any reason not to request an interpreter if the tenant speaks English, but maybe not natively? Um, I'm, not a, I'm not, any of the other attorneys that may have more, um, have dealt with this more specifically can chime in. I don't know um, in detail about the specific rules around interpretation, but I would say if someone feels like they need an interpreter to fully participate in their court case, then they should request one. I don't know if anyone has anything to add. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Maggie. And I, I don't know what, you know, the next couple of weeks are going to be like. I know that, um, you know, recently it's, it hasn't been too difficult to get a, an interpreter. Um, but I, I would certainly say if the tenant uh, feels like they, you know, may not understand some of what's being said, if they don't have um, the interpreter, then it's certainly a good reason to request one. Yeah, I would definitely exercise that right to an interpreter. You want to, you know, you want to just understand exactly what's happening. So, um, and contemporary Darian is asking: Can temporary restraining orders be filed via maid? If so, ex parte. I think I may hand this to Jay. Do you? I think there's a TRO option, but I don't know. Is it live? I don't know a lot about it. I haven't used it. Yeah. So I, I, 
I'm actually not very familiar with that option. Uh, I believe something was added recently, um, but we'd have to find out more information about whether it's live, like Maggie said, or like, you know, if you access it the same way that you access the maid um, answer and, and uh, discovery portal. Yeah, and TROs are, there's also, if you go to Mass Legal Help, there's also a booklet where you can, um, you know, it's a little more clunky doing this, doing the sort of booklets remote, but it, it, it will get you where you need to go. Also tenants, um, you know, the court has like pro se forms for, for, um, for TROs as well. Um, and they're, they're, my experience is that they've been helpful in, in, in getting tenants to um, ha have access to that. An anonymous attendee asks, what is meant by a first tier event exactly? Does that just mean the initial court appearance? So um, I encourage everyone, if they have the time, to read Housing Court Standing Order 6-20. It's a quick read and it's, um, it's, it's, it's informative. And it, it describes what the first tier event is. It's gonna be the first court appearance in any new case filed um, uh, now, <laughs> basically. Any case that you would be helping with answer and discovery, the first court date would be a first tier event. And it's, it's, it's um, a mediation with the housing court specialist in which um, various things can be worked out, including an agreement if one can be reached, uh, you know, whether a CDC declaration was filed, uh, whether there, there's an opportunity to um, explore uh, rental assistance, um, discovery deadlines can get worked out. Um, yeah. Folks, feel free to add. <laughs> is, is that all? I think that's are all the questions I see. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's all of them. Um, so I think without, uh, thank you everyone for um, joining us. And I think without further ado, uh, we'll sort of turn this over to Volunteer Lawyers Project. Thanks so much, Maggie and Jade. See you guys soon. Bye, take care. Um, so thanks everyone for staying on. Um, now that Maggie and Jade have walked you through um, answer and discovery and the MAID process, um, we're really excited to tell you about how you can use what you've just learned um, through the Volunteer Lawyers Project Answer and Discovery Clinic. Um, so my name is Amy Anthony. I'm the supervising attorney of the housing and appeals units at VLP. Um, and I have with me here today um, our staff attorneys, Alana Clark and Natasha Vednanda, um, and our housing paralegal, Alec Gubitz, um, and our, also our pro bono manager, um, Miranda Black, who you will have um, a lot of uh, contact with. Um, so basically, we are launching this uh, answer and discovery clinic to address this, um, these sort of unprecedented numbers of people and families who are facing eviction. Um, and it's a really, really op fantastic opportunity for you to work with clients one on one um, to, to actually do their answer and discovery. Um, so as Jade and Maggie um, sort of emphasized, um, answer and discovery is so important for our clients to both preserve and also assert their rights um, and really makes a, a big difference in the trajectory of their cases. Um, so you volunteering uh, with us to do that um, really makes a huge impact. Um, so this part of the training is gonna go through all of the ins and outs of the clinic so that you know what to expect um, and uh, so that you're prepared to volunteer on the day of. Um, so Alec is going to pull up a presentation. And if you could just go to the first slide, Alec. 
Um, so just to walk you through today's agenda, we will go through with you how to actually sign up for the clinic. Um, we will do an overview of actually how the clinic works. Um, it's in a Zoom uh, environment, which can be a little bit um, tricky for those of you who haven't done it before. Um, and then we're also going to talk about some changes to summary process eviction cases. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about these tiered events um, that Maggie and Jade mentioned. Um, more about the clinic process. Um, Alana will talk to you about the CDC moratorium and the declaration. Um, and then we'll also talk about next steps for you all if you'd like to volunteer, um, both at the Answer and Discovery Clinic. And then we also have many, many, many other opportunities um, for volunteering. And again, the need is great. So we really appreciate your time. Um, and so for now, I'm gonna hand it over to Miranda Black, our pro bono manager. Hello, uh, thank you everyone for coming today. I'm sure you've heard that a few times since you've been here about an hour now. Um, we're very excited to have you learn more about VLP's new Answer and Discovery Clinic. Um, we're starting this at a needed time, as I'm sure you know, and we're excited to have you join us on this adventure as we um, start a new clinic and help hopefully a lot of clients with their eviction cases. So for VLP's Answer and Discovery Clinic, you can sign up. Um, we have a link for signup.com, but you can also visit our website, vlpnet.org. Uh, we have a page for our housing clinic and on the side of that page, there is an orange sign up today button. So when you click that button, you'll be taken to signup.com where you can select any desired dates or times that you would like to volunteer at the clinic. We will hold the clinic every Thursday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And we have broken that down into two two hour slots. So we'll have a 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. slot and an 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. slot. And we're looking for eight volunteers each day um, in each slot, so 16 overall for a day, and you're welcome to sign up for just one slot, or if you wanna sign up for all four hours, you are more than welcome to. Um, when you sign up through signup.com, you will get um, an email just confirming that you are signed up. And then the day of the clinic, or the week of the clinic, we will send out the Zoom information that you need, so you can log in on that day. Um, the email you get from signup.com, I will say save that as well, even though it doesn't have the Zoom information, because it will have a button where you can cancel your slot. So if something comes up and you can't make clinic, we completely understand. We just ask that you use that email to cancel so we can put someone else in your slot. And if you have any questions about signing up, you can always reach out to me, I'm happy to help. And then um, one thing that we are offering and encouraging, so your volunteer work ends the day of clinic. You just help fill out the answer and discovery forms they're signed with assistance of, prepared with assistance of counsel, and then we'll handle everything from there. But if you would like to continue with your clients to their first court date, you are more than welcome to. You'll already know some of the facts of the case, you'll already have a relationship with the client, and you could extend your limited assistance to that first court date. We just ask that if you want to do that, you are LAR certified. So on our website, you can find the LAR materials. It's a video you can watch and a training manual to review that will go into what LAR is and how we use it in clinics. Um, the process is self-certification, which is really nice. There's no official form you have to fill out. You don't have to email anyone saying you've completed the materials, you just go through them and you're good to go. And one of the nice things about LAR is it's a one-time certification. So if you're certified through one of our other clinics or you've certified for a different pro bono opportunity, you are already good to go and you are welcome to help your client um, after the answer and discovery phase. So thank you all so much. I will pass this back over to Amy, but if you need anything at all, need help signing up, you can always reach out to me.
Hi, everyone. My name is Natasha Vedananda, and as Amy mentioned, I'm a staff attorney here at BLP in the housing unit. Um, I hope everybody can hear me. So um, before I get into the Answer and Discovery Clinic, which is we're calling that the A&D Clinic for people who aren't familiar, um, I want to provide a little bit of context. Um, in the past, pre-COVID, we, we had a live um, lawyer for the day clinic, and we were set up in the court in the courthouse um, on, on trial days and litigants could come up to our table. Um, they could get uh, legal assistance, advice, things like that. And now that we've moved into this sort of virtual world, we've had to sort of innovate and come up with, with new initiatives uh, to reach as many people as possible. Um, and so the Answer and Discovery Clinic is one of those. Um, and particularly now where the state moratorium has lifted, um, as, as the other speakers mentioned, we're expecting sort of a, a wave of new evictions. Um, so having that first contact with litigants um, in a clinic like this is really gonna be um, sort of vital to kind of containing this and you know doing what we can. So for volunteers, um, one of the great things about this clinic, and I know Miranda mentioned it, is that it's a, it's a limited time commitment. So you can really tailor it um, to your schedule as Marina mentioned, it's a, it's a four-hour clinic broken into two two-hour sessions. Um, so you're free to stay for two hours, for four hours, um, you know, do one week, do as many weeks as you want. And, you know, even just helping one client is really going to make um, like a world of difference for that client, for their case. Um, you know, just helping with that answer and discovery might stabilize their housing and, and prevent homelessness. And at a time like now, um, it's just really, it's invaluable to our clients. Um, if you meet a client and you want to take the representation further, that's also an opportunity. Um, you can sort of get to know the case in this clinic and then move forward as you like. If, you, if you're interested in that, you know, you should always um, feel free to let a VLP staff attorney know during clinic and we'll, we'll, help, you, um, we'll help you move forward with that case. Um, as far as our tenants are concerned, I'm sorry, our clients who are tenants, uh, this is just um, a really critical critical first contact with an attorney at the beginning of their case. It's an opportunity for them to have their case assessed by a lawyer, to have you know, that one-on-one -on -one time um, to ask any questions they have. Um, the volunteer attorney will be sort of assessing their, the claims that are being made against them and also their defenses and counterclaims, which is, which is crucial. Um, as Jade and Maggie discussed, having these two key documents at the start of a case can really make a difference. Um, in addition, Many tenants aren't aware that they have a state constitutional right to request a jury trial. Um, and that's something, you know, volunteers in the Answer and Discovery Clinic can discuss with, with tenants, um, help them assert that right, and, and also let them know that, you know, if at any point in the future they want to waive it, they're, they're free to do that. But in that first instance, um, you know, it's, it's always good for them to be aware that they have this right and to assert it if it's, if it's appropriate. Um, next slide, please, Alec. So the clinic is, um, as Miranda mentioned, on Thursdays from 9 to 1 p.m. starting November 5th. So we're going to have two sessions, two two-hour sessions, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Um, a client will be scheduled for each of those. We think two hours is enough, um, you know, a good enough window for you to review the documents, speak with the client, go through MAID, um, ask a VLP staff attorney any questions you might have. And then if you stay for the whole clinic, possibly have like a little breathing room in between. Um, 
We also think if, if an interpreter is necessary, two hours should be enough time um, to do all of the above with, with the interpreter. And then again, if you're, if you're interested in moving forward with this case, you can let us know during clinic um, and we'll help, you, we'll help you set that up. Next slide, please. So um, as you can imagine, there have been some, some changes to housing court and the summary process uh, procedure. Um, Jade and Maggie uh, discussed this. Um, so the first big event that you know we're all dealing with in many contexts is that all these court events are now virtual via Zoom. Um, as you can imagine, a lot of our clients uh, don't have access to the latest technology. So they might not have the, the laptop with the camera and things like that. Um, a lot of our clients have to call into these court events and um, it, it, they're, in calling in, they're often not able to sort of um, participate in the full Zoom experience. They can't see everybody. Um, they might not understand who's talking when and things like that. There's a lot of moving into breakout rooms and stuff. And it, it just, without seeing everything, it's sort of, um, it could be, it could just be difficult. And by having that first contact with you in the Answer and Discovery Clinic, uh, you really give our clients sort of a, a sense of preparedness, a, set of, a sense of confidence, um, sort of knowing what the issues are in their case, having these two key documents before going into any court events. Um, another change that's been made is that these court events are now scheduled for discrete Zoom appointments. So in the past, it would be that everybody was scheduled for 9 a.m. Um, and then there would, you know, there would be some breathing room between that 9 a.m. schedule and, and when your case was actually called. Um, and in the past, you could, you know, maybe walk up to the lawyer for the day table and get some advice. And now um, things are different. There's, there's just a little bit less wiggle room. Um, there might not be an opportunity for all litigants to sort of consult with an attorney on the, on the day of. So again, another reason why having that contact with you in our Answer and Discovery Clinic is going to be really crucial and make a huge difference for a lot of, a lot of litigants. Um, and then, you know, Maggie just mentioned this um, a second ago, but the summary process cases are now scheduled for two court events. Um, and I'm saying court events because they're, they're two different things. So uh, the first event is, um, is gonna be with a housing court specialist and it's called a status conference, um, but really it's mediation is gonna be encouraged um, in that event. And then the second event is trial. Um, and for those who aren't familiar in the past, uh, there was one court event and that was trial. So, so this is sort of an opportunity um, as the court is dealing with all these, this huge backlog of cases and this new wave that's coming in, an opportunity for parties to sort of discuss the case before going in front of the judge. Um, another change is that things will be scheduled five days a week. In the past, it had just been you know, the two summary process days, Wednesdays and Thursdays. So it's a little less predictable, you know, when a, when a client might have court. Um, further complicating matters is that when the summary, um, when the summary process summons and complaint is first uh, served and filed, instead of um, indicating the court date as it did in the past, it can say to be determined by the court, um, which is if things weren't complicated enough, you know, just another layer um, for our clients to deal with. And then the answer and discovery date is now three days before that, that first court event, which of course is um, to be determined by the court. So as soon as uh, litigants get their summons and complaint, you know, we encourage them to come to our clinic for you to help them and just make sure they make that, that first deadline. Next slide. 
Um, so as I mentioned, that first court event is a, it's, its official title is status conference, um, but it'll be held with a housing court specialist. Um, housing court specialists are employed by the court and they, they really engage in mediations every day. They're, they're really experienced in doing mediations um, and that's what's gonna be encouraged at that, that first event. Um, tenants won't be defaulted for missing, litigants won't be defaulted for missing that first court event. Um, the second court event is trial. Uh, trial is supposed to be scheduled at least two weeks out after the status conference. Um, at this point, you know, we're not sure what that looks like because we've only just started seeing these first court events being scheduled. Um, but we, according to the order, it should, it should not be sooner than two weeks out. Uh, if a jury trial is requested, that, that trial date um, might be scheduled further out. And one of the benefits of that is that, you know, time is really of the essence in these cases. They move very quickly. Um, summary process cases are you know, high stakes and really fast. So that, that little bit of extra time you know, might be what the client needs to negotiate something or to access resources. Um, and maybe even just that extra time for housing search um, could really help, help them out. So next slide. So here's the eviction timeline um, adjusted in our now uh, pre-pandemic world. So. It'll start with a notice to quit, which is that um, the notice terminating the tenancy that the landlord needs to serve on the tenant um, prior to beginning a, a court action. The notice to quit expires either generally after 14 days or 30 days, and it'll say that it'll say that on the notice. Uh, once the notice to quit expires, um, the landlord can go ahead and serve and file the summons and complaint. Uh, those are the two documents we're going to be requesting from from tenants who come to our clinic and you'll have them available to review um, during the clinic. Um, following receipt of the summons and complaint, we hope that tenants will come to us very soon thereafter uh, to be scheduled for the clinic. That's where the volunteers will come in and help them draft these key documents um, to three days before the first court event. Uh, VLP will be helping um, file those answer and discovery uh, pleadings with the court. Um, for people who come to our, our clinic. Um, then comes the first court date, which is, as we mentioned, the status conference where mediation is encouraged. Uh, if the case is not resolved at that time, there, the second court date, the trial will be scheduled, um, and that'll be later if there's a jury trial request. Um, and after that is uh, if the landlord happens to be successful in trial execution, which is the document uh, that the landlord can use to formally evict the tenant from the from the premises issues 10 days after the judgment. Um, and my colleague Alana Clark will discuss uh, how that interacts with the CDC moratorium um, and under the CDC moratorium cases that are covered, non-payment cases that are covered by that um, CDC order, uh, execution can't issue until after December 31st in those cases. Um, and I think that's my part, and I'll turn it over to our housing paralegal, Alec Gubix. Thanks, Natasha. Hi, everybody. My name is Alec Gubix. I'm the housing paralegal at VLP, and uh, been with VLP for a few years now. So, before clinic, during clinic, um, you know, I handle all the kind of nitty gritty stuff with Zoom and how to uh, make sure you have access to a client's. Uh, case information and the documents relevant to their case. So please um, feel free to reach out via email at any time uh, and we'll figure things out together. 
Um, so I'll be, like I said, I manage all that nitty gritty stuff with clinics. So that's what I'll be talking to you about today. Um, the clinic process, what happens before, during, and Alana will talk about how to wrap things up with a client. Um, so before clinic, you'll get an email from me with the Zoom login information. I'll also be providing you in that email with a very detailed clinic guide. It'll explain, uh, like I said, how to navigate the Zoom clinic environment, what to expect. Um, there'll be some screenshots in there uh, and things that to keep an eye out for. And um, this guide is also gonna include some substantive um, legal information for you as you uh, work with us to navigate, you know, the constantly changing um, legal world of uh, landlord-tenant law these days, as uh, the state of Massachusetts and the federal government has have both enacted at times moratoria on evictions. So those are um, things to keep an eye out for, and you can use this guide to prep yourself a little bit before clinic and know what that, know what to look out for. So I'll send you this email before clinic. Um, it's also gonna have some information about, uh, in particular, it's gonna introduce you to our organization's case management system, which is called Legal Server. And, um, you know, we're not in person at clinic anymore, so we can't, um, you know, just um, show a computer screen to you with a copy of the docket and uh, scanned copies of the documents. We we can't get documents from the clients uh, that they brought to court. Um, so we're using our cloud-based case management system here uh, to for everyone to be able to access it all the time and um, just be on the same page with the documents. So once you sign up for clinic, we'll give you a username and password. Uh, Miranda, our pro bono manager, will give you that. And you'll want to try to log into our case management system once before clinic just to make sure you can get in. But uh, you don't need to do anything beyond that before the clinic day. You'll have enough time the day of clinic to uh, log in and review a client's case, the documents that we've uploaded there for your viewing and the case facts that we've collected already from our eligibility screening. You'll have plenty of time to do that at clinic. So don't worry about that. Um, and uh, you know, this will be more extensively detailed in the guide how to navigate this case management system, this portal for the client's documents and information, but um, just be rest assured that you're only gonna have access to the cases that are assigned to you the day of clinic. So you shouldn't have to do too much searching. You'll just have a list of cases and there should only be one there. So you'll just have to click that link and should be able to find the information you need the day of pretty easily. Uh, and just in case that first line in this slide is a link to the login page for our case management system. Um, so we'll just put that link everywhere we can to make sure nobody gets lost in cyberspace. So that's what you'll get before clinic and the date of clinic. You wanna pull up um, some of those materials so that you're ready to go. You wanna pull up our case management system in one of your tabs on your web browser. You might wanna pull up that volunteer clinic guide 
that I sent you as a Word document. Uh, you'll definitely want to pull up the made eviction uh, toolkit that GBLS has created. And then finally, you'll want to enter the Zoom meeting. And um, on the right here is pictured what you'll see when you enter the Zoom meeting. Uh, I'll just say we'll let you in soon. You might just be preparing some things right before the start of clinic, so don't be alarmed. You'll be let in very quickly. And um, once you are let in, we're immediately going to put you in a uh, special private room where staff and other volunteer attorneys will be um, waiting for clients to arrive. Um, so right when you get in, you'll see this pop up on your screen. It'll say the host, me is inviting you to a special breakout room. In these breakout rooms, they're just private rooms that we could set up um, as many as we want. So we uh, are setting up one just so that staff and volunteers can just hang out there in private before they get a case assigned to them. So you'll just want to click on that join button like this pop-up says so that we can um, just all be in the same room and we can assign cases to you easily. And um, as we wait in there, clients will be arriving and I'll be um, I'll be multitasking and putting them in their own individual virtual rooms. So each one of the clients will just be waiting there for an attorney to show up. And while they're waiting and arriving, I and the staff attorneys will let you know that we've assigned you a case in our case management system. So if you've already logged in, you'll just go to that page, refresh it, you'll see a link there. And when you click it, you'll be able to uh, download documents from that individual's legal server page and be able to view any case facts that we've collected for the, from the client already. And um, we'll give you as much time as you need to just review that and ask the staff attorney questions because we're all together in that initial room, staff attorneys and the volunteers. Um, we'll give you time to review the case before you go and meet with the client one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but once you're ready, I will uh, put you in that room. You'll let me know and you'll start working with the client one-on-one. -on -one. A couple important tips to remember as you're navigating this environment. This will be in more detail in the guide I'll send you when you sign up for clinic. But um, a couple important details are that the, um, the way to ask for technical help from me or ask that a staff attorney pop into your private room that you have with your client, excuse me, for some uh, substantive law support or some extra perspective. Uh, the way to do that is to click the ask for help button, which is at the bottom of your Zoom window in this clinic environment. And it's just important to know that the chat function, uh, I feel like in presentations and stuff, and in other environments, it's a way to ask for help, but that chat function is only going to be between you and the client because you're the only two people in this private room. So uh, if you're wondering why you're not getting a response, it may just because you didn't click the ask for help button. So we're land that and um, in the Zoom clinic environment, 
you know, a client can't uh, look over your shoulder at what you're drafting uh, and make sure all the information is accurate unless you um, share your screen with them. So you'll just want to click that share your screen button at the bottom of your Zoom window so that um, as you're working through the MADE tool online, your client can just look at what you're writing and um, just double check everything so that at the end, you don't have to waste too much time with uh, reviewing the documents. And just a couple tips as you go through MADE at the end um, for our clinic is that we would ask that you just um, on one of the file screens, MADE is going to ask you whether you want to sign the forms or not. Uh, and I think the best way um, to comply with the SJC rules and to work through this clinic is to not sign them right away. So we'll give you a couple options as pictured here on this screen. But I would just click sign after print. And then uh, on the final screen, you'll just want to download the forms as a Microsoft Word file so that you can edit them uh, after reviewing them with the client one last time or after having a staff attorney look at them and advise you of um, some additional info to include there. So those are the two kind of clinic specific things to remember when using MADE. Uh, here we've provided you a template on how to sign the answer in discovery to comply with uh, the most recent SJC order for e-signatures. Um, so yeah, you just wanna copy that verbatim and uh, that verbiage about signing with approval LFD, that's code to the court that lets them know that you're not filing an appearance in this case. All you're doing for this client is helping them draft these forms and you're not going to get any notices about this case in the future. Um, that will be clear to the court with this e-signature. So you'll wanna do um, e-signature for your client as well as yourself. And um, to complete uh, everything and get it all um, ready for filing, we'll just wanna have a staff attorney review the documents you've already drafted. So again, just click that ask for help button to do that. We'll get a staff attorney in there as soon as possible to uh, check things over. And again, an easy, a very the easiest way for a staff attorney to look over your work is to um, for you to share the screen of the window that you're using in Microsoft Word for the answer in discovery. And then you can just scroll and the staff attorney can look over what you've drafted. So now I'm gonna pass it off to Alana um, to talk about a couple other things that we want to help clients with at this clinic besides just drafting these court forms or at least they're related to drafting these court forms. Um, some extra protections against eviction that we can uh, do at this clinic. Thank you, Alec. So um, my name is Alana Clark and I'm a staff attorney in the housing unit at BLP. And so all of you here know the um, Massachusetts uh, eviction moratorium has ended, but one thing that we really want to make sure we discuss with every client that comes through the clinic is 
whether they could be protected by the federal moratorium um, that was set up by a CDC order. That moratorium, oh, <laughs> that moratorium would begin in Massachusetts the day after the uh, Massachusetts moratorium was lifted, which would be October 17th. And that'll protect clients from eviction through the end of the year till December 31st. So if your client is facing eviction due to non-payment, you wanna ask them whether they've signed the CD CDC declaration and um, given that to their landlord. And if not, we wanna explain the process to them and assist as needed to ensure that they get that delivered. You can go to the next slide, Alec. So we'll provide you with the CDC declaration and, and it lists out all the requirements for, um, for determining whether someone is eligible, but I'm just gonna go through those here today um, and discuss each one. So the first thing you wanna check with a client to see if they would be eligible under the CDC is to see whether they've um, made best efforts to obtain all available government rental assistance. And we've interpreted that to mean that they should absolutely apply for RAFT and any other local funding. So I'm gonna discuss RAFT in more detail on the next slide. Um, but one thing to note here is if the client has not yet applied for RAFT, then you're gonna wanna direct them to that application um, and, and let them know about the CDC requirements and that after they've applied for RAFT and any other local funding, they can then go and sign the CDC declaration. Um, another example of local funding would be the Boston Rental Relief Fund. Um, but you just want to absolutely have the client apply for RAFT if they haven't already, and then you know look into whether there are any other local funding options such as Boston Rental Relief Fund. The second requirement is um, on income. So um, to be eligible, you must have earned 99,000 or less. That's the cap, 99 for the year 2020 or 198 for those filing jointly. But you shouldn't have to worry about that in this clinic. Anyone, any client who's coming through this clinic is, is going to be eligible income-wise. Um, so the third requirement is that the client is unable to pay rent due to substantial loss of income or extraordinary out-of-pocket medical expenses. And I just wanna note that neither of these need to be COVID related. Um, so, um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that the job loss or anything was due to COVID. Um, for number four, the client needs to be making their best effort to make timely partial payments as close to full payment as possible. And so what that means is looking at what the, what the um, tenant is taking in income wise and what their living expenses are and determining, you know, what is it, what is a payment that they can afford. Um, and this could mean really anything. If all they can afford is $10, $50, um, then we should be advising them to make those payments but the payment could be zero. Um, so it, it really is fact specific and you wanna talk to the, um, your client about that. The fifth requirement is that if the tenant is evicted, 
they're likely to become homeless or forced into shared housing. So living in close quarters with other people. Um, and then the sixth thing, you wanna advise them that they, as discussed above, they should continue making rental payments as best they can. Um, they need to continue to comply with the lease and fees or interest may accrue for not making those, those timely payments if they're not able to. Um, the other thing that's important to note here is the CDC moratorium ends at the end of the year. And, you know, so long as it's not extended, the landlord can require the full payment when the CDC lifts um, and failure to make those payments. Um, and, and the payments can be for before the moratorium um, and, and during. Um, so as soon as the moratorium is lifted, the, the landlord can require those payments. And if they're not made, they, the tenant can be subject to eviction um, as soon as the, the moratorium is um, lifted. So again, you wanna review this checklist with the client and ensure that they meet all of um, this criteria. Okay, as I mentioned, the first thing you wanna go over is raft. Um, and the, so a, a client must apply for raft and other local rental assistance before signing the CDC declaration. Um, if the client has already applied for raft, then while we're at the clinic, you can help them, you know, go over those requirements that I just mentioned, um, make sure that they understand them, um, that they're, that they are eligible. And if they've already applied for RAFT, you can go right ahead and, um, you know, sign that CDC, have them sign the CDC declaration um, and advise them to deliver it to the landlord. But if not, you, you should explain what RAFT is. Um, it's a state-funded program that provides financial assistance to low-income families to help them retain their housing, obtain new housing, or otherwise avoid homelessness. Uh, for COVID-related assistance, uh, well, the RAFT benefit used to be capped at 4,000. Now for COVID-related rental assistance, it's up to 10,000 per household. So it's a really significant amount of money that these clients could be eligible for. And this can be used to pay back rent, future rent, first, last, and security at a new, um, for new housing. So the other thing to, that you want to explain to your client is that RAFT is administered through local agencies. Um, so here is the um, web address where you can find out who is administering RAFT in your client's town and how to apply. But for Boston, it's administered through Metro Housing Boston. And there's the link there for um, that application. So once you've made with your client and you have um, screened them for whether they could be eligible for CDC protection, uh, you are ready to wrap up. So um, BLP is going to file on the client's behalf. So what you could do to help would be to upload the documents that you've worked on to legal server, um, which Alec has discussed as our case management system and tell the client let them know that VLP is going to file for them. Um, get their email address so that we can send those documents to them so that they, they'll have a copy. And then you want to um, go into the legal server um, in, in the client's case in legal server, you'll find an assistance provided form. Um, and there you can 
um, fill out that form and upload it back to legal server. And that form just helps us um, document the, uh, the advice, the assistance you provided, and the time that you spent at the clinic. Next slide, please. So I know Miranda and Natasha um, men mentioned opportunities to continue um, helping the client after the um, answer and discovery clinic. So um, though I do want to, so I wanna discuss opportunities that you'll have to do so, though I do wanna say that the answer and discovery clinic is a two hour commitment um, or four hours, you know, depending on what you want to do. Um, but all we ask if you want to volunteer is to do those two hours. Um, however, the representation does not have to end when the, the, the clinic ends. So as you all know, there will be many tenants in need of assistance and most will not have representation through this process. Um, and after assisting a client in this clinic, you'll know a lot about the case, a lot about the facts, and you'll really be in the best position to help them. So inter interested volunteers are encouraged, not required to continue the representation. Um, and this could mean a lot of things. Uh, you could just sign up to help draft motions. Uh, as I'll discuss in the next slide, you can help with a mediation, uh, or you could even go to full representation. So mediation um, is one step. If you are interested in continuing to help, then mediation might be a really good option. Um, so as you know, Natasha discussed, these cases are gonna be scheduled for two court events. The first is going to be a status conference where mediation um, is going to be encouraged with a housing court specialist. These are short, like 20 minute meetings over Zoom. Uh, the landlord or their counsel will be there along with the housing specialist who is a neutral mediator. The goal here is to come to an agreement. Um, if no agreement is reached, that's okay. Um, and we want to make sure that the, the client is not agreeing to anything uh, that they don't feel comfortable with or that, um, that, uh, that they don't feel comfortable with or that they can't comply with um, or that isn't fair. And that's where an attorney being there representing them can be really helpful. Um, you can also, you know, your presence there can help negotiate um, a lot of really beneficial things to them, uh, more time to obtain raft funding. You could negotiate for lower rent um, and also a waiver of past due rent. These are just examples. Um, but again, you being there could ensure that this agreement is fair. Uh, so if you plan to, or if you'd like to represent a client through mediation or anything else, um, full representation, please just let a VLP staff attorney know. And Alana, can I just jump in here? Because um, even though the goal of um, mediation is to come to an agreement, it's really only to come to an agreement if the terms are good. Um, so, you know, one thing that um, everyone should know is that when our clients come to court, um, whether it's mediation or for trial, um, you know, they are coming in a time of crisis. Um, 
often without representation, they will just want to agree to anything to get out of that day, to get out of that situation in that moment. Um, and often um, agreements that come out of mediation are actually not good for tenants. Um, so having an attorney there is incredibly important for protecting tenants' rights um, and also to ensure that they don't sign something that's not good for them. Um, so it is totally okay to walk away from mediation um, and you can continue the nego negotiation outside of mediation um, or often it's, it's actually better for the client to go to trial. Um, so, you know, uh, when we say the goal is to reach an agreement, it's with a huge caveat that um, only if the terms are good. Yep, definitely. Thank you, Amy. Okay, um, you can go to the next slide, Alec. And here, just to circle back, um, is the sign-up information for the clinic. Um, so I know this was discussed at the beginning, and I, I believe it was entered into the chat, but um, there's a link you can, um, you know, select your clinic dates, your time slot, and uh, you'll receive an email with all the Zoom login information that you need. Um, you can reach, if, if you have any questions in the meantime, you can reach out to our pro bono manager, Miranda Black, or um, Alec, who um, we met throughout the the training will be available to answer any questions. Thanks so much, Alana. And thanks again to everyone who came. Um, we just have a couple questions here that um, we can address quickly um, and then let you all go. Um, so the first question um, is, when is it in appropriate or inappropriate to request a jury trial? Um, I can take this one. I would say um, that we do recommend that people go ahead and um, assert that right to the jury trial. And then the discussion of whether or not you would actually want to proceed to a jury trial if it got to that point would be a separate um, discussion sort of down the line with the client. Um, the next question from Lisa says, what if you don't use Word, but instead use Google Docs? Um, so I think that that could probably be fine. Um, our, our main goal in having it as a Word document is um, so that we can edit it and so that also that uh, we have a copy of it um, so it doesn't get lost uh, in the ether. Um, so if you don't have Word and need to use some kind of um, Google Docs or other program, just talk to us about it and we'll um, walk through how to make sure that we get those documents. Um, so if there are no other questions, um, just thank you so much for everyone uh, for attending and please do sign up. Um, we are anticipating just huge numbers of clients um, who really need it. And um, again, answering discovery is so, so, so important and we wanna reach people at this early stage. Um, and we're also gonna be using um, these cases at the early stage to identify cases that we would wanna provide further representation to. So thanks everyone and have a good evening. Uh, Amy, one last question. Uh, are undocumented immigrants eligible for RAFT? I don't think there's any immigration eligibility requirements. Correct? However, if you are helping someone through a VLP clinic, um, based on some federal funding that we receive, we're unable to help undocumented folks at this particular clinic. Um, so that shouldn't be an issue that you have to confront. Yeah, uh, we do have um, eligibility requirements um, and unfortunately, or one of the requirements relates to immigration status. So thanks, Alec.
right, it looks like that was all the questions in the Q&A. Thank you all for attending. Thank you, VLP, for once again, dedicating your time to this cause. We appreciate you so much. This recording will be available through the BBA's website and it will be sent out to all attendees as well as the slides. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.